Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We can't wait to talk together today. It's just Melissa and I. How are you doing, Melissa? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm hanging in there. Yeah. <laughs> we, are, we are coming to the close of 2020. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> what a year it has been. I know today we're just going to just review a little bit some some highs and lows of 2020 and share some current research articles or, or, you know, current research or articles worthy of discussion about high quality instructional materials. And then at the end, have a little guest wish list for 2021, which <laughs> I'm wait. very much looking forward to because <laughs> I, I want to go after some folks. Yeah, maybe, maybe your <laughs> listeners can connect us to some people. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> it always feels like we're meeting celebrities when we interview people. It's so exciting. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, just thinking about 2020, what what have been some of your highs from 2020? Well, it's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a rough year generally in life, but, um, you know, I think if you want to talk about some highs from the podcast. Yes, we can talk about <laughs> We can do that. <laughs> um, but maybe we can think of some life ones too along the way. But, um, yeah, I think if we're thinking about the podcast, One of my favorite memories from this year, which literally feels like years ago at this point, Lori, um, was talking to Emily Hanford. Um, I I forgot that that was this year. Right. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about it because I was in California in a hotel room at like 6 (laughs) a.m. And I thought there's no possible way that happened this year because we don't leave our houses. (laughs) But it was. It was in February. Oh my gosh. Um, what but yeah, that to you from uh, that podcast? I mean, talking to her is just amazing. She's yeah. just like, I, I think we could have talked to her for like six hours straight <laughs> and just like, she has so much information. Um, and, you know, she really just the, the clarity and the way she talks about the research about how to teach reading and what's actually happening in most of our classrooms. Um, it's just, you know, she's got, she's got so much uh, knowledge around that. It's pretty amazing to listen to. Yeah. I think one of the like special talents that Emily and uh, Hanford and both, both her and Natalie Wexler share as, you know, journalists, they are really amazing at, putting all of this research and educational jargon into parent-friendly, you know, outside of education-friendly terms. And they make it very clear to understand and easy to understand. Um, I watched an, I guess it was a presentation that Emily was giving to the Odyssey School, which is where she began her uh, first APM report. Mm -hmm. And you know, we had uh, Liz Hembling on our podcast, who was a mom of a child with dyslexia who Emily interviewed. Um, and Liz's daughter went to the Odyssey School. And mm-hmm. so, 
when we when I when I watched Emily's presentation to the Odyssey School, it's just it, you're right. It's that clarity uh, in understanding and the way that she presents information. It's so easy to digest, to comprehend, to consider, and it always leaves me asking a hundred more questions than when. Yeah. You know, than before I started watching or listening to her, talking to her, I'm like, why aren't we doing more <laughs> to help? <laughs> yeah. And I think she just boils it down to like the important things, you know, it's like researchers can sometimes get, you know, caught up in very minute details, but she really yeah. boils it down to the important information and just makes it so powerful by connecting it to people's real lives and their stories. And yeah. Just, yeah, I need to get better at that skill. Sometimes I can go on and on. <laughs> I need a little one-on-one with Emily Hanford. How do you focus on the most important things? <laughs> at the end of the day, again, with some exceptions, for the most part, many people in education are not being taught what scientists have figured out about how skilled reading develops and what schools and teachers need to do and could be doing to make sure that more children develop good reading. And because they, they haven't had the opportunity in many cases to really learn about what's really almost 50 years of scientific research on how skilled reading develops, because they haven't learned that, what happens is that when you're forced with a, a struggling reader, like a kid who is struggling, you don't really know what to do. But the root of the problem is just sort of a misunderstanding or a non-understanding of reading skill and how it develops. So it's hard to know what to do when a kid is struggling. Uh, well, I felt like it was also several years ago that we interviewed David Lieben. I know. Uh, <laughs> but that was this year, right? That yeah. Was, yeah. That was, it was early, early this year. Yes. Yeah, that was um, this year. I, yeah, I know that you uh, have an impactful quote that, was that one from David that you captured? Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Yeah. If you have a skill, and people treat the standards very often as skills, uh, like skill playing a piano is a skill. You can, if you can play the piano, you can play the piano on a pretty cheap, shoddy piano, and you can, um, you can play it on, on a cheap, shoddy piano, and you can play it on, um, on a Steinway that costs tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you know how to dribble a basketball, you can dribble a basketball in the hallway, or you can dribble a basketball in the gym, <laughs> or you can dribble a basketball in Madison Square Garden. That doesn't work with standards and skills because if you have a, you can have a complete understanding of the structure standard, you understand the different structures of informational text, compare and contrast, chronological, goal, problem, solution, goal, action, outcome, etc. But then you come to the text and there are references to events or ideas or concepts or people that you never heard of and there's tier two vocabulary words that you can't understand, you cannot exercise that skill or that standard with that text. So the idea of teaching us to a standard just doesn't work. You know, we've talked about this here and there on the podcast, but we'll add them to our list. Louisiana, <laughs> we'd like to yeah. podcast with you. Um, they're developing an assessment that is not, you know, knowledge-based. So what the kids are learning about that year, they're then assessing so that they can really see, the, they can really apply the vocabulary that they're learning and, and really 
think about those topics that they can go deep with. So it, to me, that's so sensical <laughs> versus yeah. nonsensical using a different platform such as iReady to, it, it's basically just the, like a test taking. Yes. Right. I mean, <laughs> prep, I, I can't imagine what else it would be other than test prep because it's just cold reads and cold, like, I mean, not that that's not here and there, you know, needed for kids to be able to say like this, is, it's not always going to be something that I know about, but it doesn't need to be in that platform. And then, but then that data is being used so heavily to inform. That's the real issue is that that data is being used so heavily to inform instruction, which then you're impacting your core instruction, which should not be impacted by that particular data set. Am I talking about that correctly? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Which reminds me of what we talked about with Meredith and Sue. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, who were maybe my favorite. Don't tell anybody else. But I know. I, you know, I want to get a glass of wine with them and just hang out for the entire night. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, like, I literally felt like I had known them forever and we had just met them. <laughs> yes. They have, that, they have a very special gift. Meredith and Sue, you are very warm and friendly. And oh, yes. We loved uh, podcasting with you. We, I, I think we should totally send them bottles of wine and be like, pop it open it. Seven o'clock on Tuesday, and we'll be on the Zoom. <laughs> and I just love how they talk, like to talk to people who were a part of creating the standards, who mm-hmm. can really speak to like what was meant, <laughs> how they were meant to be used, and how they are not always being used that way right now. Um, was I for me just it was it was so incredible to hear from them in particular for that very reason. Yeah, and, and you know, I think it. It really affirmed all that I had been thinking about how the standards are being used and and affirmed the work that, you know, we are doing. But it also helped me to think about how we can use their voices to help others also understand that. And it's, I think what stood out for me the most in that conversation, and and I can't recall if this was in the conversation or just my brain space afterwards, just digesting it. How do we help the decision makers in districts and how do we help the decision makers in schools, like really gearing it toward that leadership piece, understand the true intent of the standards? Because there's so much, quote, documentation, you know, assessment documentation, exactly what we just talked about with the instruction. Yeah, I ready and swing trying to swing back and use that data for wit and wisdom when it really is an unrelated data set that should not be impacting core instruction. But then the question begs, why are we doing this? You know? Right. Um, so it was it really spoke to me about trying to help leaders and understand this. It, and and it's so hard because it's been so embedded for so long. Mm-hmm. Oh. I know. Well, <laughs> I want to share one of the quotes from Sue because I literally have it on a post-it on my wall, <laughs> a summarized version. But I yes. sometimes when I get really stuck in meetings, I have to just look up and read it. Like, okay, this is why, this is what we should be focusing on, right? We should be focusing on reading a text. <laughs> yes. You know, and not, you, know, you see it all the time with Press's homework, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> just... Yeah, because there's so many inequities in taking it away from the text. Yeah. And also 
not just any text. I'll put that out there. (laughs) Basil, Basil readers are not, in my opinion, considered texts worthy of reading. Um. (laughs) They talk about the whole time is like, it's all about those complex texts and that standard 10 and which is so important. And we often don't even talk about it. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. It just gets thrown by the wayside because it's like assumed, but that's really, really important. (laughs) It's the most important. Yeah. (laughs) All right. We're going to pause and listen to Sue for just a second. Right. And, and, and the fact is that, you know, both of you are raising and Meredith said this as well around the text is, is that the re- we don't read a text to check on our skills and our comprehension strategies, like <laughs> <Right>. boring <laughs> and not useful. Right. We read. And this is one thing that I think got lost in in sort of decades of schooling too, is that we thought that it was all about the skill or it was all about the comprehension strategy, which I know has research behind it, but not like ad nauseum. The point of reading is to learn from it. And then when you learn from one text on a particular topic, then you can read another one and you, you add to your knowledge on that. That's why we read. And by the way, that is what is interesting to students is to hear what an author's saying. You might agree, you might disagree, you might be learning more, it might conflict with what you heard before or knew before, but that's what's interesting. So my favorite quote from the post-it, <laughs> you guys all got to hear it. <laughs> Love it. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, Sue, for your wit and your wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> um, one last one I just wanted to highlight really quickly. Um, I know you have one too, Lori, um, was Dr. Santelisis, our CEO here in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just particularly, we've both talked about this before. She's an amazing speaker. So she could probably be talking about anything and it would be like <laughs> super powerful, but <laughs> what she was talking about would actually be really powerful. Yes. Um, and I just, I, I went and re-listened to that one because it's been a while and, you know, just the way she talks about how, you know, we have just been doing a disservice to students by focusing only on ELA and math and just cutting out all of the content areas. And so all that knowledge that they would be learning in those content areas, like for her, like she's like, that's the equity piece that we need to be talking about that no one's really, well, we are in Baltimore, but (laughs) (laughs) not everybody across the United States is and, and should be. I realized very clearly, particularly during my work at Ed Trust and looking at schools across the country, I found that one of the unintended consequences of focusing on literacy and math, and I think, you know, I came up during the NCLB era, and there was a lot that was good in terms of looking at equity um, and equity of outcomes, but what I realized and saw very clearly across the country is that larger numbers of classrooms with black and brown young people, with first-generation college goers, with low-income students, were almost stripped of all of the richness of content that, one, we know from science is that kind of sticky knowledge that allows you over a period of time to be able to make connections in knowledge. Um, And two, they were far less likely um, to be exposed 
to things that in my own daughter's lives, you know, I could supplement. I, I, I remember saying, what do you mean you haven't done the Revolutionary War? Well, we're going to go to the library and we're, gonna, we're actually going to study the Revolutionary War. And we're going <laughs> to study the role of women in Revolutionary War and African Americans. And we went to, you know, we went down to D.C. and they read the Constitution. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and yeah. what I realized was that actually, and this is why, and you all know this, this is why I call it an equity issue is that you have teachers teaching in some of the most challenging circumstances with young people that have had the least access to this kind of enriching content and whose families are the least equipped to make up for what schools are not giving. And so we turned the purpose in, in kind of an attempt not to offend people. We turned the purpose of school into just being a place where people kind of dialogue and exchange. And that's not what it is, right? Not for young people. There, there is a content that we can debate, but there, there is a responsibility um, for schools to be able to do that. And so content-rich curriculum, standards-aligned curriculum, for me, very early became an equity issue um, and that we were overly dependent on families to make up for the content that for generations people had come to expect schools to be able to give. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. And that's where I think the high-quality instructional materials come into play. And I know we talk about that constantly on here, but, you know, if you're not using high-quality instructional materials, then you likely are just focusing on skill-driven both ELA and math, which we know ELA really cannot be skill-driven. Math can be as long as it's coherent. Um, but it, it, she's so powerful. And speaking of, I know that, <laughs> again, this feels like a long time ago, but it was in the summer. Uh, Jared, Ma- say it for me, Melissa. Markle? 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 Jared, we love you. We're going to just, just Jared. <laughs> I think we were close. We were close. Uh, he shared lots of amazing pieces on the podcast. We, again, could have talked with him all day. Um, but one of the most impactful topics that he talked about is how no- knowledge travels well in this 2020 land- pandemic landscape that, you know, is going to extend into 2021 a bit. Um, but how kids who are receiving high quality instructional materials in person, virtually hybrid, what have you are in a much better place and are still engaged in learning and wanting to learn, like still have that desire to learn versus the other flip side of it is that my child cries every single day. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really hard to hook her in when it's a basal reader or, you know, a topic that is, doesn't have a through line. We have to go back and like wrap our arms around knowledge drives reading comprehension, right? So if I know everything there is to know about rainforest and you give me a text to read about the rainforest, whether or not I've read it before, I'm going to be able to answer the questions and do pretty well, right? Because I know a lot about the rainforest. But if I know a lot about the rainforest and you give me something to read on polar bears, like I'm probably not going to do as well because I don't know everything about polar bears. I know everything about the rainforest. So the more we can do to build a broad base of knowledge in kids on specific topics, 
but across a variety of domains and fields, they're going to be so much more likely to encounter lots of things that they can uh, decipher and make sense of. And so I think that's really at the heart of that phrase, because no matter where kids are learning, at school, at home, at the library, uh, in the parking lot, wherever they can get Wi-Fi, um, which, I mean, unfortunately is a reality right now with the situation we're in, um, that knowledge travels well because it's going to help them regardless of the context, regardless of the text that they're reading. And like you said, it's just more interesting, right? Like (sighs) it's more likely that they're going to be engaged in those very specific high interest topics. That takes me back to why knowledge travels well. And um, that, that statement has really stuck with me throughout this year. And, you know, I've, I've heard so many stories from different districts about, you know, if some of our kids are virtual and they never get to see their teachers, they don't have any synchronous time. It's all asynchronous or, Um, our kids are virtual and they have this amount of synchronous time and this amount of asynchronous time. But the bottom line is that the teachers, you know, like Kier and Katie, who we, we had on, who were preparing for the first day of school, who already have the materials in their hands that they can trust are doing far better than teachers who are creating whatever, in addition to then figuring out how they're going to have their students respond. Like Katie and Kier could just say, okay, here's what, what we want to do in the curriculum. How can I make that happen? They're more thinking about, you know, can I use a Nearpod platform? Can I use a, a, a make, like a seesaw? I don't know all the platforms as well as, <laughs> as I should. But they're really thinking about the student experience engaging with the content versus an, a, another teacher whipping up content, which as we know from talking with Sue and Meredith, the standards are really, really challenging to execute effectively. So, you know, why are we giving teachers this job when teacher's job is to teach students? So why are we not putting high quality materials in teachers' hands? Absolutely. Yep. And I think that gets to some of the the lows of this year that the things that are a struggle for teachers you brought up, right, is that, you know, it is hard to engage students right now because they're not <laughs> physically with you. Yes. So especially for our middle and high school, you know, I, I actually saw a meme for the first time that like captured it the other day where it was Oh like, my gosh, I saw it too. And yes. I don't know if you, if you posted it or what. It made me laugh so hard. I was like, this is 100% true because I have a third grader downstairs and I can verify that this is what's going on. Just <laughs> like that the elementary teacher and all the kids are on there with like, here's my dog. Here's my cat. Look at this. And they're all like, (laughs) I fell off my chair. I'm unwitting to tell you a fun story about breakfast. (laughs) And the poor high school teacher who just has like all the cameras off. and like, can someone just like say hello this morning, please? (laughs) It's real, you know, but, but like you said, you know, it's like, if, if you're worried about trying to create a curriculum and on top of it have that challenge to try and both either way, right? But either one of those is a challenge in its own way. Yeah, it's uh, all, it feels enormous. And yeah, teachers are just, you know, this year in particular, every year teachers are amazing. But this I mean, year in particular. Ridiculously teachers, amazing this year. Yes. Um, absolutely we we are in all of everything that you're doing absolutely (laughs) high quality curriculum or not we know you're giving it your a game so hard 
I, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. Like, I see Presley's teacher. Like, I think she's a second-year teacher. She is teaching her rear end off. Like, she is every single day with this basal reader that and a nonsensical story. You know, I mean, it, 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 it makes some sort of sense. But she's doing her very best. And it is... It's not her fault. It is not her fault that those are the materials that were put into her hands because she is, I see her doing her best to engage students. I mean, she is calling them at like in a great way, like, hey, don't forget to turn your camera on. I want to see your smiling face or, you know, it's so-and-so like, remember that, you know, we want to do, do this because it's, it's going to help us be better at that. And she's really, really trying to engage them and with the materials that she has and, you know, make, I I see her even making math engaging virtually, (laughs) you know, there's so many ways that teachers have just risen to the occasion this year. And we know it's exhausting because we would prefer that students be in school with you too, and being able to hug you and love you the way that you deserve. (laughs) And I'm exhausted and I'm not even trying to do all that. So I can imagine, (laughs) I think just working from home in this, like in this year with all the stress around you with the pandemic too, is it's hard. Yeah. And I'm not even trying to engage hundreds of students. (laughs) I know. I know. I I just think it's so hard to, I mean, I'm, I think it's amazing that you get to still take Elliot to daycare. I feel like when I'm not working, like, you know, if I'm like run downstairs to make lunch, it's like, oh, I have to make lunch for every, like, you know, suddenly I'm making a buffet and (laughs) (laughs) then I have to clean up the buffet. (laughs) And it's just, it's so, you know, then, then also in the moment I'm a teacher, you know, trying to do third grade math and that's really challenging. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and so it's just, it's been, it's been a year of trying to stay focused, but also being okay with, with being unfocused at times. Yeah. And I would just say like, I mean, even with our podcast, we've talked about this as like, we, you know, we had a couple months there where we maybe only had one guest. <laughs> we normally would have had a couple. Um, we, I am personally terrible at Twitter right now. <laughs> like it is just I know. You know, um, a layer of things that I just don't have in me right now, which is tough because, yeah. because we did before, but we're doing yeah. our best and we're still connecting and <laughs> yeah. I think that, that we're that's, work like everybody is. <laughs> that's the theme, right? Teachers are doing their best. We're all doing our best. Parents are doing their best. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that's all we can do right now. Yes. So I pulled some some articles uh, that we might want to discuss a bit and share with our with our listeners. Um, sure. one of the ones related to what we were just talking about is about how high-quality instructional materials helped minimize the pandemic's impact on literacy outcomes. Um, and so that we thought that might be interesting. That was from Tennessee. And with our friend Robin, right? With our friend Robin. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and it's recent, too, which is why I pulled it. It was posted on December 16th, 2020, Robin McClellan. Uh, she is our high-quality curriculum cheerleader is that episode uh she's just so positive if you don't follow her on twitter please go follow her right now she's just she's just a bright light and a shining star of positivity (laughs) 
uh, and for Sullivan County Schools. And what I love about this is that it's just a quick snapshot. Um, it's not, you know, if you want to read it, just a quick little snapshot of uh, what Robin is doing and, um, and see, just see the impact of students' uh, access to high-quality instructional materials. It's a quick snapshot of data, and then it just quickly, quickly unpacks it. So it's, we'll include the link in the pod, but it's really in the pod notes, but it's really just like a quick snapshot, which is nice if you're just looking for like a, oh, this is what students um, have done, and they've still moved this year despite the pandemic. And it sort of reminds me of our chat with our friends in Nebraska who mm-hmm. chose to actually start this year <clears throat> implementing a new curriculum. Um, and, and I think that's right. It was like, you know, don't put it on pause. Don't say this is too hard to do virtually. It's, it was the right move to keep it, keep it going even during the pandemic. Yeah. And I think that's such a, I think they should be called out for, for doing such a brave oh, absolutely. task or a brave, <laughs> being so brave. I, that's really, that's, we've never been, been in a pandemic. With them. <laughs> yeah. Tracy and team, really, we, we still think about you and how brave you were to keep going. For sure. <laughs> what else you got, Lori? Okay, so the second one is, uh, well, actually, the next two are from Curriculum Matters. And so there's a fabulous team from Curriculum Matters just doing all kinds of work where they're writing blog posts and sharing all kinds of information. So on this particular one... We have, um, now these are their pictures. It didn't, I think that these are the authors, but it's uh, Janice Lane, it's Nikia Hardy, it's Robin McClellan, and I'm not sure who this fellow is. Do you know him? I'm going to say his name's Scott. Let me look it up real quick. Keep going. Okay. I feel like Scott something. (laughs) Scott, we have to put your name next to it if it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, this is another one from you know more recently from October 20th 2020 and just talking about the importance of high quality curriculum in these pandemic times (laughs) Um, and it starts with a little bit of uh, information about uh, Lucy Calkins and then how we're pivoting to high quality curriculum from that and why and uh Curriculum Matters shares some stunning uh, evidence around the curriculum renaissance and why it's been slow to reach classrooms. And the statistic that I want to share with you today is that only 7% of elementary teachers use high-quality curriculum. Yeah, that's, that's versus, what I talked about earlier, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's, you know, versus the the reading workshop of Lucy Lucy Calkins is used in 20% of schools. And we know that that's, you know, not research-based it's, it's ineffective. And so it begs the question, like why only 7%? Go. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard. So I just wanted to pique your interest listeners with some of, (laughs) some of the statistics from this particular article. Um, But it, uh, Scott Langford, by the way, from thank Sumter you. County, also Tennessee. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm Scott. I'm sorry I didn't recognize your face off, <laughs> off the cuff. I should have uh, done that before we started podcasting. <laughs> I thought I re- recognized everybody in the picture. Um, and yeah, and then, so then there's another one from Curriculum Matters. Again, um, you know, m- 
before the school year or or just as the school year started uh, August 23rd, 2020, but thought it still might be relevant, making an impossible challenge more manageable. And <laughs> a lot of great leaders, again, um, Janice Lane, Robin McClellan, both of who we've had on the podcast, um, but Diana Fetterman, Janabeth Francis, Beth Gonzalez, Nakia Hardy, and Colleen Stearns, they're all part of the Curriculum Matters crew, and they talk about how they've never experienced a school reopening like this one and how they would be lost if they didn't have high-quality curriculum in place in their district. Um, and they had a little squad meeting, and they all echoed the same sentiments. So we thought it might be important to to read a little bit about why they um, feel that way. So why they feel like it's so important that high quality curriculum at this particular time um, has never been more, I guess, important. I'm trying to not use important again, but <laughs> important <laughs> is the key word right now. <laughs> we'll take it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And so I think maybe that could pivot us into our guest wish list because um, <laughs> I would like to do, I would like to call out the entire Curriculum Matters crew, <laughs> the whole <For> squad. Sure. <laughs> yeah, we, we would... should have like a, an actual squad uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we curriculum... have lots of them on. Yeah, I love everything that Curriculum Matters puts out. I, I love all of the interaction on Twitter with Curriculum Matters and they're, they just, I, I love how they respond so quickly to current topics um and they have a little squad that is growing and we would love to have more of the squad on we already started with some of the squad and <laughs> some more. It's, it's really powerful to hear from actual district leaders who are doing this work and to yes. hear how it is changing the what's happening in their districts yes and i you know i think it's important for change to continue like this this change to me feels always like a big wave you know you you roll in and then you go back a little bit and then you roll in a little bit more and come back a little bit um but how we can continue that forward motion of the wave and these leaders are doing this work and it's really important for us to hear from them uh, and and all of the high their highs and lows because we know it's it's not an easy journey it's um it's changing mindsets and that's hard to do so curriculum matters get ready to go on tour with (laughs) with literacy podcast (laughs) Um, there are a ton of authors that I definitely want to talk to. Mm-hmm. I don't even know where to start, but there's a, a lot on our list. Um, we've talked about Mark Seidenberg, um, who wrote The Language of the Speed of Sight, which is a really, really great read if you haven't read it mm-hmm. yet. Um, I also saw him on a couple research articles that I was like, oh, is this is this the Mark Seidenberg? <laughs> 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 How many Mark Seidenbergs are there? Do other things besides just write the one book that I really love. <laughs> yes. Anyone else in particular who you're? Um, we've talked about David Kilpatrick, who's mm-hmm. just super, super smart, and wrote um, this like tome of a book that I have in front of me at all times. Oh my gosh, it's so funny. I was like, this book is massive. It's really intense. Right? You know, assessing, preventing, and overcoming reading difficulties is just like I go to that a lot. Um, so I, I think he might have too much information for us to put in one podcast. But we could do a two-part series. Maybe he's just he could bring uh, his friends from the ninety-five percent group. We could do a two-part series. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, who else do we have author-wise? Oh, the um, study that just came out from Fordham University. We've already yeah. asked, asked the authors from that um, study. Um, so we'll probably be talking to them pretty early next year. But the mm-hmm. studies about social studies and reading comprehension and how important it is. But, um, you know, if you only look at the title of that, you're like, well, you guys, I know we're talking about literacy, so reading comprehension makes sense, but we don't really talk about social studies. Um, but one of the main things they talk about that's really important for what we can do um, is have uh, these, you know, high quality um, knowledge building curricula that, you know, it, it's really helpful to have in ELA. So they, you know, both let's increase social studies and the quality of what's happening in social studies. And, you know, ELA can also support that um, the, the work of what might not be happening in social studies as well. <laughs> Yeah, um, so I just it's a really I, I was shocked by the um the numbers in that report. So that'll be fun to talk about. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm excited. I was happy when they responded that they would love to do it. Um but it, this makes me think of when I, I just recently spoke with a class of seventh grade students and they just finished Wit and Wisdom or were finishing Wit and Wisdom Module One, where we know they go deep into the Middle Ages. And so they were so interested in, I mean, of course, it's the, the texts lend themselves to the, you know, they're reading the Canterbury Tales and Castle Diaries and about to read The Midwife's Apprentice. And they were so interested in the topic and the texts and just completely intrigued. Um, and they had just finished a Socratic seminar. And I was just thinking, oh my gosh, if we could pull your social studies teachers in right now to hear you all talk about the, these texts and topics, like they would be so amazed. And, and what a great compliment to any social studies class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if, and, and you know what, this is something that I think that teachers, um, struggled with in the past when I was working in Baltimore, you know, they would say, well, we don't teach that the middle ages in seventh grade. That is in eighth grade or even that was in sixth grade. That is something where we don't need to shift that around, right? Keep it where it is if that's where it belongs. And then if, if they learn it in sixth grade, they will come with a little bit of knowledge and be able to build on that and it, and keep, building their schema of the Middle Ages and attach all their knowledge to that. And if they don't know anything about it, we're building it. And then when they move to eighth grade and they're asked to, you know, oh, what do you know about the Middle Ages? We're going to, we're talking about that now. Then they can go back into their longstanding schema of the Middle Ages from seventh grade work and, and build on that. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to happen in the same school year. Um, that's something that I feel like we've had some conversations about that have felt a little bit tricky to unpack. Um, but that in the, the long game, it's not like, um, you know, you and I will talk about a topic and then the whole rest of the month, I'm only focusing on that topic. Like it's like little bits here <laughs> and there, you know, or like, oh, I saw this on Twitter. Oh, Melissa, you shared that about that with me. I'm going to remember that. And I'm now going to read this article remembering that, um, we talked about this and we learned about this together and I'm learning more about it now. So, yeah. you know, it, it's more authentic to a real life yeah. experience. And I think too, often when social studies gets put in the literacy conversation, it becomes a, how do we do the skills based yes. in social studies as well, which yes. of course social studies teachers then are like, I don't, that's not what I do. 
Yeah. Um, so I think it's really powerful for them to hear that, you know, this the building of knowledge that you do in social studies and building of vocabulary that you should be doing in social studies actually will help the reading comprehension. <laughs> so, yes. you know, it's not about like totally, you know, shifting and taking away all of that from social studies, but it's about doing it well. Yes. Um, so, and, and like you said, you know, how can we do that both in ELA and social studies um, so that they get, they get all that time yes. <laughs> where it's happening in a school day. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to talk to them. So Adam yeah, Tyner, we can't wait. Yep. <laughs> you and your team. <laughs> uh, who else, Lori? Um, On your list. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I know we've really been, I mean, we talked about Emily Hanford earlier and we would love to talk to really anyone at the university level who is part of a successful reading science program or science of reading program. Um, in particular, we were thinking Mount St. Joseph University because that's where Emily had mentioned, right? Am I right on that, yeah. Melissa? I think she did. If she didn't, I, I look at them a lot because they have a, an actual master's program. That's right. Um, okay. For reading science. Maybe um, you mentioned it and not Emily, <laughs> but I, I do think that Emily did say that she took a, a course. I think it was through them. Yeah. Um, and they're actually creating a doctoral program around reading science as well. So, you know, they're the one of the few that I think have it very clearly labeled <laughs> as reading science. There might be, a, a, there are others that have it like embedded within a program, but they're very clear that that is their focus. Yes. I also thought it would be amazing to talk with uh, to you know, Ed reports, um, and Rivet Education, because Ed Reports reviews the curriculum and Rivet Education reviews the professional learning. So mm-hmm. I thought, what a better compliment to what we are talking about on every single podcast than to talk with Ed Reports. And um, I think you mentioned that Lisa Potts is the director of ELA Review. Yeah, so, yeah, she came to an event here in Baltimore, and she's a lot of fun. So, oh, nice! <laughs> that would be that would be, I think, an amazing thing to talk with them. And then also, Rivet Education um, came out with a professional learning partner guide earlier earlier this year. I feel again the year is blending together. I think it was earlier this year. <laughs> it was this year. I think it was maybe summer. <laughs> Oh, that's not that far away, but it seems that far away. Um, and it, I just thought it would be incredible because, you know, we talk a lot about wit and wisdom. And so if we wanted to zoom in, Lisa could talk about how they review curricula and talk a bit about, um, you know, the, the wit and wisdom uh, review. And then also Rivet Education talked about the professional learning that's involved and, and how professional learning for high quality curricula is different than other professional learning um, would be a question that I would want to ask about. For sure. Yeah. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. Who else are you thinking of? Uh, well, I've mentioned a few times to you that, uh, you know, we both listen to the Amplify podcast. Yeah. The Science of Reading podcast. And we just thought it would be really fun to have Susan Lambert on so we could mm-hmm. actually talk um, about podcasting and not, not just podcasting, but like what she has learned through her podca- podcast and what we've learned through our podcast. And yeah. Um, thought that would be that would be a lot of fun too. I'm all over cross pollinating podcasts. <laughs> I I think yeah, that it would be fun people. to do. We've had great people. We've had some of the same great people. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's really fun to to 
to go into that podcast and to see who we've had versus who they've had and listen to some of the interviews with the same people. And yeah, yeah, that would be, that would be fun. Uh, Speaking of, they've had Robert Pondicio, I believe, but we have not. And I would really like to interview him. He is just such like a a calming. um, I'm not sure why I've never heard him speak or anything but when I when I read what he what he writes um I just feel like exhaling like oh yes (laughs) thanks Robert (laughs) I feel like he was one that I was following pretty closely on Twitter but Mm. since I haven't had the time I've I've lost uh I've lost uh sight of what he's been working on recently so it would be great to get to kind of catch up and that would be good I love how we we can uh you know follow people on Twitter and feel like we know them a little bit. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He's my Twitter friend. (laughs) He probably doesn't even follow us. I don't know. No, I think he might. might. I can message him. Um, I also would love to chat with uh, the Vermont Writing Collaborative. I know that their book, Writing for Understanding, just is it's very much relatable in just being easy to understand and easy to access. And, you know, um, Diana Letty works at Great Minds. So we would love to interview her in particular. But that, just the, the fact writing that... understanding is one of my favorite. Yes. It's, it, <laughs> I could keep reading it over and over again and have a new takeaway each time. Yeah. And, and writing is something we haven't talked too much about. So that would be a nice new avenue to explore yes um, I'm wondering too maybe the National Writing Project someone from there would be fun too to talk to oh that's a good idea yeah add them to the list <laughs> yes we have a list going we're, we're, we're starting uh <laughs> starting 2021 strong with everybody who we want um yeah and then I I think it'd be important to we haven't uh really talked a lot about well we've talked about how this how high quality curriculum materials are great for all students. Um, but I'd like to get some ELL experts in and, and really hear from them, um, you know, from the EL success forum, maybe like how and why high quality instructional materials prevail for ELL students. Because I think that, you know, a lot of times the response is like, well, that's too hard. So I want to know why are high quality instructional materials necessary for ELL students like what and and really what does that what does the work for ELL students look like is it how is it different you know than um then uh, I I guess we could say what the 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 student body um how is this different for this subset of students and and how is it different for uh special education students like so let's let's think about those different groups of students who we haven't talked as actively about in the past. For sure. And that reminds me of, um, I mentioned to you, Dr. Julie Washington, which mm. I'm trying to pull up. I, I know she was at, um, I think Georgia state, but she moved to a different college and I can't find where she is now, but anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but she was on a podcast that I listened to about, it was, um, the podcast was called You're Wrong About, and it was titled The Abonics Controversy. Mm. Um, and she just really talked about the, like, effect of, not the effect, but, like, like, you know, each, every student has a different dialect of English that you learn speaking. So how that then affects the way that you learn phonics, 
um, makes a really big difference. And for, for teachers to like have that in their mind, um, and it wasn't just Ebonics specifically, but even like, um, I was just doing a little bit of my letters training. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, just like even um, I, I had an ex-boyfriend who, you know, he, the I and the E and like pen and pin yeah. is basically the same sound. Like, <laughs> it was like pen, pen. <laughs> and I was like, are you saying pin or pen? <laughs> there really wasn't a difference for him because that was like what he heard. Um, yeah. And how that would then affect, you know, the way you learn <laughs> phonics and how that might affect your actual learning how to read. Of I just course think it's it would. Really, really interesting. So that's a, another road we could go down at some point. I love that. And I know uh, you especially called her out because on that particular podcast, she was only on for what, like five minutes or so. Yeah, because she was like, I just want to keep hearing her talk. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. And speaking of letters, we should probably talk about Louisa Motes or Carol Tolman. For sure. The work they're doing with that training across the country right now. Yes, absolutely. I would love to talk to them. I think that their their work is is pivoting teachers to an, a new way of thinking and it's really impactful in the education mm-hmm. world. So I'm so happy that they uh, came up with the letters training and and are, are just spreading the science of reading <laughs> far and wide. <laughs> and then I can ask them if they're ever planning to make one for secondary teachers that <laughs> would touch on a lot of the same things, but maybe in a different way. That is a really good point. <laughs> I also would love to talk with some districts who are who are in doing this work, you know, just like we did with um, with Tracy, and you know, and her t- and her work. Um, so in Aldine, Texas, I know that they are implementing Wit and Wisdom Year One for grades six through eight, and you know, not just limited to Aldine. If you are also implementing high quality instructional materials, we'd love to talk to you too. But you know, they stood out to me as being a large district in Texas, which I believe is about the size of Baltimore, uh, would be really exciting to hear from because I think, you know, there's so much value in, see, in seeing the implementations between uh, larger districts and smaller districts and medium-sized districts. And uh, I just thought we haven't really talked to a very large district recently. So it might be fun to, to chat with them. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, if there are any teachers out there that want to talk to us, I think that would be amazing too. Yes. Open invite. If you're a teacher, (laughs) we want to talk to you. Literacy (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Oh, so good. Well, I think that this was a really nice way to sum up the year and to look ahead to what's coming in 2021. And I know that there's just so many people to to talk with. The possibilities are endless, but I'm very, very happy and grateful to have you uh, alongside of uh, as we do this work because I love learning with you, even though I know you are, um, you know, more of the secondary lens. I think that it's a nice, nice compliment. Um, and, and I just love doing this work with you. So, and I'm glad we we're still able to do it during this, this year. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it was a tough year for everybody. So I'm glad we, we kept it moving. <laughs> I know. I know we did our best, right? Yes. <laughs> I think that's what, it, that's what we should title this one. Every, everybody's doing their best. We did our best. <laughs> I love it. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, thanks for, thanks for catching up today. Of course. Thank you, Lori. <laughs>